Today's episode of Vox Tablet is a sponsored post on behalf of Yale University Press and their Jewish Lives series. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Vox Tablet. I'm Sarah Ivory, your host. Today, we're talking about Vladimir Zev Jabotinsky. Students of Jewish history and the history of Mandate Palestine are familiar with the name Vladimir Jabotinsky. Jabotinsky was born in Odessa. He was a journalist and an ardent Zionist committed to the establishment of the State of Israel. That's just the tip of his iceberg, though it's the familiar tip. There is much more to this figure, and in a new biography, writer Hillel Halkin examines what that is. Halkin looks at Jabotinsky's life and legacy beyond the political realm, and he joins us today on the podcast to talk about it. Hillel Halkin, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thank you very much, Sarah. Jabotinsky is probably best known for his part in leading the militaristic Zionist youth movement called Betar. He was also a founder of the Haganah, the Jewish Defense Organization, and the Irgun, which was the paramilitary group that split from the Haganah. You deal in the book also with lesser-known aspects of his life, which we'll get to. But before we get to those lesser-known aspects, I'd love it if you can give us a sort of quick Jabotinsky 101. Jabotinsky is, is, is very unusual among the Zionist leaders of the 20th century, I think, in, in several respects. So one is his background. He did not, as is sometimes said of him, come from an assimilated Jewish home, far from it, actually. But he grew up in Odessa, which was the one place in the entire Eastern European Tsarist Empire that was uh, very westernized, open to Jews and on the whole very tolerant of Jews and a very cosmopolitan and sophisticated place. And Jabotinsky growing up in Odessa was that anomaly of a, uh, what you might call a central or Western European style Zionist in Eastern Europe, which is partly why he had the reputation of being very assimilated because other Eastern European Zionists like Weizmann or like Ben-Gurion who really grew up in the shtetls of Eastern Europe, the Yiddish-speaking Stettles of Eastern Europe, saw in Jabotinsky this westernized, cosmopolitan, Russian-speaking-from-birth figure, saw in him basically someone very non-Jewish. But he wasn't. He was just a, a kind of Jew they weren't accustomed to. Ben-Gurion once said of Jabotinsky, and Ben-Gurion and Jabotinsky were bitter rivals. Uh, Ben-Gurion once said of him, as I quote in the book, he said, Jabotinsky was the only Zionist politician I know who was never intimidated by the Goyim. But perhaps that was what helped Jabotinsky to become an extremely militant Zionist. Was his home a particularly Zionist home or a a Jewish home? Did he have much of a Jewish uh, upbringing? By our standards, uh, certainly yes. Again, by the standards of a Ben-Gurion or a Weizmann, perhaps not so much. His mother kept a kosher kitchen. She lit Sabbath candles. She spoke Russian with a heavy Yiddish accent. He had a bar mitzvah. He had bar mitzvah lessons. He actually studied Hebrew quite intensively as a boy because his mother insisted on it and served him well later because his Hebrew as a grown man was excellent. Um, at the same time, he had very little to do with the synagogue, even as a boy. He, he hated synagogues. He hated going to synagogue. He hated. He had no interest in Jewish ritual. But he also grew – growing up in Odessa in the 1880s, the 1890s, the early 19th, 20th century as he did, was growing up in a very culturally Jewish city. Odessa was uh, – in those years, one might say, the cultural capital of the Jewish world. So 
Jabotinsky uh, had a very strong sense of being Jewish when he was young. But what he also had, and what, again, the Weizmanns, the Ben-Gurions didn't have, what he had the sense of a potentially non-Jewish self. To He knew that he, he had the choice to live a life that wasn't particularly Jewish if he chose to because he had all the qualifications and the education necessary to do so. Mm-hmm. But growing up in a Jewish home is not the same as growing up in a Zionist home. And so I wonder what for Jabotinsky was the turning point that caused him to become so uh, committed to the idea of the establishment of a state of Israel? Well, it's true to say that Jabotinsky did not grow up in a Zionist home. When he was born, which was in 1880, Zionism really didn't even exist. But Jabotinsky does write in his memoirs that his mother always told him that one day the Jews would have, she used the Yiddish word, their own lucha, their own kingdom. And emotionally, it was a Zionist home, as were most homes in, in Eastern Europe. I mean, Jews, the attachment to the land of Israel, the, the, the belief that one day Jews would return there and live there again, if only in Messianic times, was a staple in almost every uh, Eastern European Jewish household. But there were certain events, right, it, the kitchen of Pogrom, for instance, that were quite critical in his Zionist development. It's true. Uh, one has to say that the kitchen of Pogrom for Jabotinsky is in some ways what the Dreyfus affair was for Herzl, which is to say a myth. <laughs> uh, you know, there's this common conception that Herzl suddenly became a Zionist because of the Dreyfus affair. Herzl had been toying with Zionism long before the Dreyfus affair. The Dreyfus affair catalyzed many Zionist perceptions for him. The same is true of the, of the Kishinev uh, pogrom and, and Jabotinsky. Jabotinsky actually was becoming more and more interested in Zionism already a year or two before the uh, Kishinev pogrom. But the pogrom in Kishinev, which was in uh, the spring of 1903, uh, certainly had an enormous effect on him and in a way catapulted him into Zionist activity, uh, even before the pogrom itself, because the pogrom, which didn't affect Odessa, by the way, it, it skipped over Odessa, it hit Kishinev, which was 100 miles away, but the, the pogrom was in the making for several months. I mean, people who had eyes to see saw it coming, and Jabotinsky was one of those people, and he joined a Jewish self-defense group in Odessa, which was very active. So that, and this was really his, his first active participation in, in Jewish communal life and Jewish politics, if you will, in a, in a, in a kind of proto-Zionism. Uh, you know, Zionism in Eastern Europe uh, was not just a movement of getting Jews to emigrate to Palestine. It was also a movement of heightening Jewish consciousness and organizing Jews. And, uh, and self-defense certainly was one area where which Zionists took very seriously as, as part of their mandate. Hillel, tell me, what draws you to Jabotinsky? You want to know how I came to write this book? Yes. <laughs> I came to write this book because about uh, 10 years ago or 12 years ago, uh, Jabotinsky wrote two novels, one of which uh, – both are, are really very fine books, but uh, one is a particularly wonderful novel. It's called The Five. It's about five brothers and sisters in a Russian-Jewish family in Odessa at the turn of the 20th – end of the 19th, turn of the 20th century. And uh, – it's a magnificent novel, and it's probably one of the, the best Russian novels of the 20th century. It was written in the 1930s. And about 10 or 12 years ago, a review, an uh, English translation of it came out that I was asked to review for the New Republic. And uh, I didn't know a great deal about Jabotinsky before I wrote that review. And I was really... Uh, 
staggered by the book, by its beauty, by the profundity of it. And I wrote a very long review uh, full of praise for the book. So when uh, several years later, Yale University started this series, this Jewish Life series of Jewish biographies, the two editors, Anita Shapira and Steve Zipperstein, I think were familiar with that review and, and turned to me to ask me to write the Jabodinsky biography. And I was very, very happy to do so. You made Aliyah to Israel several decades ago. I wonder, did Jabotinsky figure in your imagination in any way as you were conceiving of the idea of making a life for yourself in Israel? Well, I grew up in a very Zionist home, but on the whole, although I didn't realize it at the time, kids don't really know how to contextualize the way they're brought up, but it was basically a labor Zionist home. The labor Zionism was bitterly critical of Jabotinsky and uh, often thought of Jabotinsky as a, you know, an extreme right-wing demagogue or even a fascist, as he was often called by left-wing Zionists. So my initial impression of Jabotinsky certainly was not a positive one. But uh, I think that over the years, I've, I've come to appreciate uh, other narratives of Zionist history more, to understand that Partly this had to do with the town that my wife and I settled with in Israel, Zichron Yaakov, which is an uh, old farming village going back to 1882, uh, to the first Aliyah, as it's called, which predates the second Aliyah, which was a labor Zionist, a socialist Zionist Aliyah by some 20 years or more. And uh, the old farmers of Zichron, and I still knew a few of them when I, when I arrived in town. I was there, there were still a few alive whom I befriended and wrote about were bitterly critical of the second Eliyah and of, uh, you know, they were, they were rugged individualists. And I began from them to, in, in some ways, pick up a, an alternative history of, uh, of Zionism. So that by the time I came to write the Jabotinsky book, I think I was much pre more predisposed to see Jabotinsky positively than I might have, you know, 10 or 20 years earlier. Let's step back for a moment. For listeners who have no real understanding of what these dynamics are, why did the labor uh, movement see Jabotinsky as a fascist? Well, when he was young, Jabotinsky, like young people generally in his age, was had, had socialist opinions. But by the 20s, the early 20s, Jabotinsky had, first of all, become very anti-socialist, partly because of his take on the Russian Revolution which much of the Zionist left supported. I mean, it's a bit of an embarrassment today, so we don't mention it. But Ben-Gurion, for instance, in the early 1920s was very, very pro-Bolshevik revolution, very pro-Lenin. Mm -hmm. uh, so were many of the other uh, leaders of the Zionist left in those years. Jabotinsky was, uh, I think, shocked by the coercive brutality of uh, communist-style socialism and began to really to develop more and more of a... Uh, belief in, in, in capitalism as the desirable economic system. So he broke with the left on that issue. He broke with the left on the issue of uh, dealing with the British. Uh, Jabotinsky felt very early on in the British mandate period, again starting in the early 20s, that the British, unless they were constantly challenged and confronted by the Zionist movement, were going to betray the Balfour Declaration ultimately. Not because they were evil, but because it was in our interest to betray the Balfour Declaration. Uh, being friends with the Arabs was more important to them than being friends with the Jews. And Jabotinsky was from the beginning for a very, very militant stance against the British, constantly putting pressure on them to keep their Balfour Declaration commitments. Weizmann was not a, a labor Zionist, but he, he and the labor Zionists worked for years and years in a kind of uh, 
alliance, and that alliance was always against confronting the British. It was uh, so they, and was for trying to work behind the scenes, and uh, so that was the second issue that Jabotinsky broke with 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 the, the left on. And uh, Jabotinsky, very early on, before almost any other Zionist leader, I would say before any other, came to the conclusion that uh, the struggle for Palestine would inevitably end in an Arab-Jewish war. There was no alternative. He didn't do this out of uh, contempt for the Arabs, on the contrary. I think it was his great respect, in a way, for the Arabs that made him realize that you couldn't, that un unlike what the labor Zionists thought, you could not buy the Arabs off with promises of economic progress or of Jewish investment or of... Uh, favors from the British or whatever. The Arabs, in the end, Jabotinsky was convinced very early, were, were like any people that has a land, were going to fight to, to keep that land. And the only way that land would be taken from them would be by force. So that was the third issue that Jabotinsky really disagreed with the left on. Um, now, none of this explains why he would be called necessarily a fascist. But his style of leadership was in many ways uh, – we, we get into a complicated thing. <laughs> a cult of – in the Zionist right in the late 20s and more so in the 30s, a kind of cult of personality formed around Jabotinsky. He was, he was revered. His attitude towards the reverence that was paid him was very ambivalent. On the one hand, it appalled him and he couldn't stand it because he really had no illusions about himself. He knew himself. He knew he was not a god. <laughs> On the other hand, it was very convenient for him politically to, to accept the adulation and the reverence. And in some ways, he did exploit this power. That is, the left, he, 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 he was never a demagogue. If you read his speeches, if you read his addresses, they're all always masterfully crafted. They're never demagogic. There's no ranting and raving in them. But he was adulated. And uh, as I say, sometimes he exploited this. And, and the left, which had no parallel figure, Ben-Gurion was a consummate politician, but he was not adulated by anyone, <laughs> nor any of his fellows, uh, saw in this uh, something akin to you know the worship of or hero worship of Hitler or the hero worship of Mussolini and, uh, and pinned the fascist label on, on Jabotinsky. It was certainly not entirely merited, but I must say it was not 100% unmerited either in some ways. I want to talk a little bit about his literary works. I mean, he started out his career really as a journalist. Is that right. correct? And he moved into novels and poetry, even screenplays. Where does he fit in the pantheon of uh, writers in Israel today? Is he read as a literary figure? No. <laughs> Why not? He's not read, although I would qualify that by saying neither is almost anyone else of his generation. Uh, no one but students of literature read Bial reads Bialik anymore, <laughs> either, you know, or Agnon for that matter. I mean, you read Agnon in the university course. I've very few Israelis will just pick up a volume of Agnon at home and read it for their pleasure. Mm -hmm. But besides that, Jabotinsky did not write in Hebrew. He wrote his good poetry is all in Russian, and his two novels are in Russian, and his short stories, some of which are absolutely wonderful, was in Russian too, and it's all been translated into Hebrew. But there too, he's never been considered to be native to Hebrew literature, so that he, uh, Hebrew literature has never considered him one of its own. Did you get the sense in writing this biography that he uh, felt the tension between being involved in political work and also wanting to be involved in the life of the mind? 
Absolutely, in the life of the mind and in the life of creative uh, of creative literature, uh, Jabotinsky was very aware of the fact that uh, he had chosen a, a career that of a Zionist politician, which didn't completely eliminate the possibility of being a uh, creative, imaginative writer, but certainly put curbs on it in terms of, of the time and energy he had available for it. Yet he did have quite a prolific output, even if he was uh, limiting how much time he spent. He did, but he would have liked to write more. He, he writes in a letter towards the end of his life, he says, I have 11 unwritten novels in my mind. He doesn't say what they were. 11 unwritten novels. Well, he published two. And there were people who knew him who, who, who couldn't, when he first really went full-time into Zionist political work, there were people who couldn't understand what he was doing. They would say, what? You know, they're at... They they asked him, "What are you doing? You 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 have this talent. You 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 can be a great Russian writer. Why are you going to waste your life being a Zionist politician?" And uh, I don't think, of course, that he considered it a waste of his life by any means. What do you think is Jabotinsky's legacy today? It's a difficult question, uh, partly because. Uh, Israeli politics both has and has not taken a Jabotinskyan turn in some ways. That is, you know, the, the Likud and Netanyahu's Likud might be called a great-grandchild of uh, Jabotinsky's revisionist party. That was the name Jabotinsky gave to the right-wing Zionist party that he founded in the 1920s. It was called the revisionists because it it had a double meaning, both the meaning of revising the course that Zionism was taking and of revisioning sort of uh, things, going back to Herzl's original vision of Zionism. Jabotinsky very much believed that he was Herzl's disciple and that he was the only Zionist leader of his age who was continuing in Herzl's footsteps, really. The question then is to what extent does and does not the Likud reflect the real Jabotinsky? You know, to this day, the, there's a huge painting or portrait of Jabotinsky behind the, behind, at the back of the stage at every Likud convention and, and he's still you know, the revered, considered the revered founder of, of the, the party. And I think in, in its militancy, in its belief that, uh, that the Arabs are not to be trusted and again, not, to, not because they're they're morally deficient, not to be trusted because, you see, Jab Jabotinsky, <laughs> this may be a slight aggression, but, but both the, the Zionist right and the Zionist left have always basically done the same thing with the Arabs. They've projected themselves onto the Arabs. The Zionist left have said, has said, we don't think territory in itself is worth fighting for. We don't think every part of the land of Israel, every part of Palestine is worth shedding our blood for. So, of course, the Arabs don't either, and we'll be able to sit down and make peace. The Zionist right has always said, we do think that territory is worth fighting for. We do think that every inch of the land of Israel, and this was Jabotinsky's position, is worth shedding our blood for. If we think it, certainly the Arabs do. And therefore, we're not going to be able to reach a settlement with them. Uh, and Jabotinsky never believed that in the foreseeable future a settlement with the Arabs would be reached. Jabotinsky has a famous essay called The Iron Wall, which basically says Zionism must build an iron wall, by which he meant a, a wall of military might around itself, 
only on the day when the Arabs are utterly convinced that that wall can never be torn down by them will they make peace. And that really, I think, is the thinking of Netanyahu and the thinking of Likud to this day, that no peace agreement signed today is going to be permanent or really uh, can be trusted because the Arabs are going to violate it because they're going to want all of Palestine. As I say, Jabotinsky didn't think this was immoral of them. He understood them. He put themselves in his, their place and said, if I was an Arab, I'd want it all too. So they're going to want it. Um, and in this sense, I think the Likud really does remain very Jabotinskyan. On the other hand, Jabotinsky, for all the charges of fascism that were hurled at him, not only was not a fascist, but he was in many ways a classical European liberal. He was a great believer in democracy, in human rights and democratic rights and civil liberties, and in, in also in, in uh, a Jewish state's ability to integrate non-Jews in its society and to treat them with as full equals in that society. And I think Jabotinsky would be very unhappy with the Israel that exists today in terms of its record on human rights, on, on uh, observing, respecting certain democratic procedures. And I think that the Likud that really never has internalized those Jabotinskyan principles. Begin did to a certain extent. I think Begin was a genuine believer in parliamentary democracy and in in, in, in civil rights. Uh, Netanyahu, although he observes the democratic forms, but I don't think it really means that much to him. And in that sense, the, the Jabotinsky has not prevailed in, in his followers. Hello, Hulk, and thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome, sir. Hillel Halkin is a writer and translator based in Israel. His new book is Jabotinsky, A Life. It's out now from Yale University Press's Jewish Live series. Today's episode of Vox Tablet is a sponsored post on behalf of Yale University Press and their Jewish Live series. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm Sarah Ivry. Thank you for listening. <laughs>